Jeffrey encountered Anthony Tony Hughes at a nightclub, and this is his 12th victim. Tony lost his hearing as a baby because of some side effect of medicines that were given to Tony as a child. He was apparently mute. Tony graduated from the Wisconsin School for the Deaf. Tony moved to Madison, Wisconsin to go to college while pursuing a modeling career. Tony was lured to Jeffrey's apartment with an offer with an offer money with an offer to for money to pose for photographs. Tony was drugged into unconsciousness before Jeffrey injected hydrochloric hydrochloric whatever acid into Tony's skull in an effect to disable Tony's will and render Tony submissive. Although on this occasion the drilling and in, in injection proven to be fatal. Sadly, Tony died at the age of 31. On the afternoon of May 26, 1991, Jeffrey encountered loud teenager Conrad Simphone, his 13th victim. In 1979, Conrad and his parents and seven siblings fled from Lao to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in search of better opportunities. Jeffrey encountered Conrack on Wisconsin Ave. Unknown to Jeffrey, Conrack was the younger brother of the boy he molested in 1989. Remember that? I talked about it. I said that that was one of his victims. But his older brother lived and got away, unlike Conrack. Um... Uh, uh, Jeffrey offered Conrad money to pose for some Polaroid photos at Jeffrey's apartment. According to Jeffrey to, a, a, uh, sorry, and accompanying Jeffrey to a, oh, maybe it was according. According to Jeffrey, Conrad was initially uh, to the proposal before changing his mind and accompanying Jeffrey to his apartment where he posed for two photos in his underwear before Jeffrey drugged Conrad into unconsciousness and performed oral sex on Conrad. Before Conrad fell unconscious, Jeffrey led him to the bedroom where the body of Tony whom Jeffrey killed three days earlier, lay on the floor. According to Jeffrey, he, quote, believed Conrad saw Tony, quote, yet Conrad did not react to seeing Tony's bloated body, likely because of the effects of the sleeping pills Conrad had ingested. On this occasion, Jeffrey drilled a single narrow hole into the crown of Conrad's skull, through which he injected hydrocholic acid into the frontal lobe. Jeffrey then drank beers while laying alongside Conrad before briefly falling asleep, then leaving his apartment to drink at a bar and purchase more alcohol. In the early morning on May 27th, Jeffrey returned towards his apartment to, to, to discover Conrad sitting naked on the corner of 25th and State, talking in loud with three distressed young women standing near him. 
Jeffrey approached the women and told them that Conrack, whom he referred to by the ally or Elias, uh, Elias, uh, sorry, uh, John Hong, quote, was his friend and attempted to lead Conrack to his apartment by the arm. The three women dissuaded Jeffrey, explaining they called 911. Upon the arrival of two Milwaukee police officers, John Blair Zach and Joseph Gabrish, Jeffrey, Jeffrey's demeanor relaxed. He told the officers that Conrad was his 19-year-old boyfriend, that he had drank too much following a quarrel, and that he required uh, he frequently behaved in this manner when intoxicated. <clears throat> Jeffrey added Conrack, his lover, <coughs> sorry, had consumed Jack Daniels whiskey that evening. The three women were exasperated, and when one of the trio attempted to indicated attempted to indicate to one of the officers, both of whom had observed no injuries beyond a scrape on Conrack's knee and believed him to be intoxicated, that Conrack had blood upon his testicles, was bleeding from his rectum, and that he had seamlessly struggled against Jeffrey's attempts to walk Conrack to Jeffrey's apartment prior to their arrival. The officer harshly informed her to butt out, shut the fuck up, and to not interfere. Shortly after the arrival of the Milwaukee police, uh, police officers, three members of the Milwaukee Fire Department arrived at the scene. These individuals also examined Conrad for injuries and provided a yellow blanket for the, for the police officers to cover Conrad. One of the three believed Conrack needed treatment, but the police officers directed the fire department personnel to leave. Shortly thereafter, Officer Richard Probukan arrived at the scene. Richard and Gabrish, followed by Borlezak, escorted Jeffrey and Conrack to Jeffrey's apartment as Jeffrey repeatedly commented commented on the general crime in the neighborhood and of his appreciation of the police. Inside Jeffrey's apartment, uh, inside Jeffrey's apartment, and in an effect to verify his claim that he and Conrack were lovers, Jeffrey showed the officers the two semi-nude Polaroid pictures he had taken of Conrack the previous evening. Though Bull Bolsarzak said he smelled n nothing unusual. Garbage later stated he noted a strange scent reminisce of excrement inside the apartment. This odor emulated from the decomposing body of Tony. Jeffrey stated that to the investigators this odor, one officer simply peeked his head around the bedroom, but really didn't take a good look. And th this is me talking at this point. Excuse me? They didn't see Tony's body on the floor or all 
the blood on the bed. He should have been caught, and why didn't they investigate the horrendous smell? This is crazy and stupid. If I were a police officer, I'd be trying to get a search warrant. And then, I, this is me talking again, no idea, I have been told the smell of a decomposing body has a unique smell, and once you smell it, you can never forget it. Maybe they didn't ever smell it, so they wouldn't know. This is 1991, so cops didn't care as much since back then being gay was not really okay, and you didn't really talk about it. I think nowadays cops have gotten better. And we all know that Jeffrey did not take good care of Conrad. So the officers just listed the incident as a domestic dispute upon the departure of the three officers from his apartment, Jeffrey again injected hydrochloric acid into Conorak's brain. This second injection proven fatal. The following day, May 28th, Jeffrey took a day's leave from work to devote himself to the dismemberment of the bodies of Conorak and Tony. Jeffrey retained both victims' skulls. Conrad died Conrack died at the age of 14. On June 30th, 1991, Jeffrey traveled to Chicago where he encountered Matt Turner, his 14th victim. Matt was born in Flint, Michigan on October 15, 1970. Those who knew him said he was a good kid who was bright and articulate. Matt, who occasionally used the name Donald Montrell, was living in Chicago after running away. Matt had a high aspiration to becoming a model. Matt accepted Jeffrey's offer to go back to Milwaukee for a professional photo shoot. At the apartment, Jeffrey drugged, strangled, and dismembered Matt and placed his head and internal organs in separate plastic bags in the freezer. Matt was not reported missing, and Matt died at the age of 20. On July 7th, 1991, Jeffrey lured Jeremiah Weinberger from a Chicago bar. His 15th victim was born on September 29, 1967. Jeremiah was a native of Puerto Rico. He resided in Chicago in, in 1990 and was working as a customer service representative for a video store. Jeremiah loved art and was very meticulous. His roommate Tim Gideon said his desk was always straight and he knew where everything was. He always dressed nice and always worried about what he wore and how he looked. Jeffrey promised to spend the weekend at his apartment and Jeremiah went back to Jeffrey's home. Jeffrey drugged Jeremiah and twice injected boiling water through his skull, sending Jeremiah into a coma from which he died two days later. On July 15, 1991, Jeffrey encountered Oliver Lacey at the corner of 27th and Kilbourne. His 16th victim was born on June 23, 1968. Oliver was originally from Oak Park, Illinois. 
Oliver was a standout track racer at River Forest High School and has been described as outspoken. He was the youngest of three sons. Oliver said to his Oliver was said to be a family man and even wore his father's cross after his passing. Oliver was a father of a two-year-old and was engaged to get married. Oliver agreed to go to Jeffrey's, Jeffrey's ruse opposing nude for photographs and accompanied Jeffrey to his apartment where the pair engaged in, in a tentative sexual activity before Jeffrey drugged Oliver. On this occasion, Jeffrey intended on prolong uh sorry on this occasion Jeffrey intended to prolong the time Jeffrey spent with Oliver while alive. After unsuccessfully attempting to render Oliver unconscious with chloroform, he phoned his workplace to request a day's absence. This was granted, although the next day he was suspended. After strangling Oliver, Jeffrey had sex with the corpse before dismembering Oliver. He placed Oliver's head and heart in the refrigerator and his skeleton in the freezer. Four days later, Jeffrey received word that he was dismissed. Oliver was only 23 years old. Upon uh, recent, uh, upon receipt of this news, Jeffrey lured Joseph Brandhoft. Joseph was born January 24, 1966, in Minnesota. Joseph was the eldest of four siblings, and he grew up in Illinois. Jeffrey moved to the area of Milwaukee. He moved from Minnesota to Milwaukee. Joseph was looking for work and was living in an apartment rented by his brother. Joseph had a wife and three children back in Minnesota. The, the children age ranged from two to seven year, years of age. He was in search of a job to help financially support his family. Joseph left for a job interview on July 19, 1991 and was never seen again. His family said that he loved sports and fishing and was a devoted father. Joseph was strangled and was left lying on Jeffrey's bed covered with a sheet for two days. On July 21st, 1991, Jeffrey removed the sheet to find Joseph's head covered in maggots. Jeffrey then decapitated Joseph's body, cleaned the head, and placed it in the refrigerator. Jeffrey later assified Joseph's torso along with two other victims killed within the previous month. Joseph sadly died at the age of 25 and left a wife and three kids. Now that he is done killing, we will be talking about the victims that got away. Now that he is done killing, we will be talking about the victim that got away and finally got Jeffrey caught. On July 22, 1991, Jeffrey approached three men with an offer of $100 to accompany him to his apartment to pose for new photos, drink beer, and simply keep him company. One of the trio, Tracy Edwards, agreed to accompany Jeffrey to his apartment. Upon entering Jeffrey's apartment, Tracy noted the foul odor. 
and several boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor, which Jeffrey claimed to use for cleaning bricks. After minor conversation, Tracy responded to Jeffrey's request to turn his head and view his tropical fish, whereupon Jeffrey placed a handcuff upon his wrist. When Tracy asked, quote, what's happening, quote, Jeffrey unsuccessfully attempted to cuff his wrist together, then told Tracy to accompany him to his bedroom. Tracy noted nude male posters on the wall and that a videotape of The Exorcist 3 was playing. He also noted a blue 57-gallon drum in the corner, which a strong odor was em emulated. Then Jeffrey brandished a knife and informed Tracy he intended to take a nude photo, nude pictures of him. In an attempt to appease Jeffrey, Tracy unbuttoned his shirt, saying he would allow him to do so if he removed the handcuffs and put the knife away. In response to this promise, Jeffrey simply turned his attention to the TV. Tracy observed Jeffrey rocking back and forth and chanting before turning his attention back to him. Jeffrey placed his head on Tracy's chest, listening to his heartbeat, and with the knife pressed against his intended victim, informed Tracy he intended to eat his heart. In continuous attempts to prevent Jeffrey from attacking him, Tracy's repeated that he was Jeffrey's friend and that he was not going to run away. Tracy had decided he was going to jump from a window or run through the unlocked front door upon the next available opportunity. When Tracy's next stated he needed to use the bathroom, he asked if he could sit with a beer in the living room while there was air conditioning. Jeffrey consented and the pair walked to the living room when Tracy exited the bathroom. Inside the living room, Tracy waited until he observed Jeffrey had a mon momentarily lapse of concentration before requesting to use the bathroom again. When Tracy rose from the couch, he noted Jeffrey was not holding the handcuffs, whereupon Jeffrey, uh, sorry, Tracy punched Jeffrey uh, punched Jeffrey in the face, knocking him off balance, and ran out the front door. At 11.30 p.m., Tracy flagged down two Milwaukee police officers, Robert Ruth and Rolf Mueller, at the corner of North 25th Street. The officers noted Tracy had a handcuff attached to his wrist, whereupon he explained to the officers that, quote, freak, quote, had placed the handcuffs upon him and asked if the police could remove them. When the officer's handcuff keys failed to fit the brand of handcuff, Tracy agreed to accompany the officers to the apartment where Tracy stated he had spent the previous five hours before escaping. When the officers arrived at apartment 213, Jeffrey invited the three inside and acknowledged he had placed the handcuffs upon Tracy. Although he offered no explanation as to why he had done so, at this point, Tracy made known to the officers that Jeffrey had also brandished a large knife upon him and that this had happened in the bathroom. Jeffrey made no comment to this revelation, indicating to one of the officers, Mueller, that the key to the handcuffs was in the bedside dresser. 
As Mueller in entered the bedroom, Jeffrey attempted to pass Mueller to retrieve the key himself, whereupon the second officer present, Ruth, informed Jeffrey to, quote, back off, quote. In the bedroom, Mueller noted that there was a large knife beneath the bed. He saw an open drawer, which upon closer inspection contained scores of Polaroid pictures, many which were of human bodies in various stages of dismemberment. Mueller noted the decor indicated they had been taken in the same apartment in which they were standing. Mueller walked into the living room to show them to his partner, uttering, sorry, show his partner uttering these words, quote, these are for real, quote. Uh, when Jeffrey saw Mueller holding several of the Polaroids, he fought with the officers in an effort to resist arrest. The officers quickly overpowered him, cuffed his hands behind his back, and called a second squad car for backup. At this point, Mueller opened the refrigerator to reveal a freshly severed head of a black male on the bottom shelf. As Jeffrey lay pinned on the floor beneath Ruth, he turned his head towards the officers and muttered, quote, what, what I did, I should be dead, quote. A more detailed search of the apartment conducted by the Milwaukee Police Criminal Investigation Bureau revealed a total of four severed heads in Jeffrey's kitchen. A total of seven skulls, some painted, some bleached, were found in Jeffrey's bedroom and inside the closet. Investigators discovered collected blood droppings upon a tray at the bottom of Jeffrey's refrigerator, plus two human hearts and a portion of arm muscle, each wrapped inside plastic bags upon the shelf in Jeffrey's freezer. Investigators discovered an entire torso plus a bag of human organs and flesh stuck in the ice at the bottom. Elsewhere in the apartment 213, investigators discovered two full entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp, and in the 57-gallon drum, three further dismembered torsos dissolving in the acid solution. A total of 74 Polaroids of Jeffrey Brick of Jeffrey's victims were found. In reference to the recovery of the of body and artifacts at the Oxford apartment. Sorry, the chief uh, medical examiner later stated, "Quote: It was more like dismembering someone's museum than an actual crime scene." Quote. Now we are getting into Jeffrey's confession, beginning in July of twenty. Uh, sorry, July twenty third, nineteen ninety one. Jeffrey was questioned by Detective Patrick Kennedy as to the murders he had committed and the evidence found at his apartment. Over the following two weeks, Kennedy and later Detective Dennis Murphy conducted numerous interviews with Jeffrey, which when combined total over 60 hours, Jeffrey wa waived his right to have a lawyer present. Throughout his interrogations, adding his wish to confess all he had, quote, created this horror, and it only makes sense I do everything to put an end to it, quote. Jeffrey readily, uh, Jeff, 
Jeffrey readily admitted to having murdered 16 young men, 16 young men's death since 1987, with one further victim, Stephen Hicks, killed in Ohio in 1978. Most of Jeffrey Jeffrey's victims had been rendered unconscious prior prior to their murders, although some had died as a result of having acid or boiling water injected into their brain, as he had no memory of killing his sectum, sorry, second victim, Stephen Toomey. He was unsure whether he was unconscious when beating to death, although he did concede it was possible that he was viewing the viewing the exposed chest of Stephen while in a drunken stupor may have led him to unsuccessfully attempt to tear Stephen's heart out, out of his chest. Although the murders Jeffrey committed after moving into the Oxford apartments had involved a ritual of posing the victim's bodies in suggestive positions, typically, typically with the chest thrust outwards prior to prior to dismemberment. Jeffrey readily admitted to engaging in necrophilia, which several of the victims' bodies, including performing sexual acts with their vesicaria as he dismembered their bodies in his bathtub. Having noted that much of the blood pooled inside the victim's chest after death, after death Jeffrey first removed their internal organs, then suspended the torso so the blood drained into his bathtub. Before dicing any organs he did not wish to retain and paring the flesh from the body, the bones he wished to dispose of were pulverized or acidified. I don't know why, but I really like the word acidified now, even though I'm not a big fan of like what Jeffrey did. But at least he's admitting to all of his crimes, unlike a lot of serial killers that will just say, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. You know, so at least he's saying he did it. And I'm not saying like he's a good killer. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong there. He is not a good person. And another thing is, is at least most of his victims were unconscious. Doesn't mean that they didn't feel it. Doesn't mean he's good, but at least, you know, they didn't feel much pain. Um, but Asified, hold on. And pulverizing and acidified with Solax and bleach solution used to aid in the preservation of the skeletons and skulls he wished to keep. Jeffrey confessed to having consumed the hearts, liver, and biceps and portion of thigh of three of his victims he had killed at the Oxford apartments. Raymond Smith, Ernest Miller, and Oliver Tracy. To have uh, and have to retain the flesh and organs of other victims for intended for intended consumption. Tip, typically, Jeffrey would tenderize the body parts he intended to consume prior to preparing meals flavored with various portions of his victims due to his quote curiosity quote. Before adding quote, I suppose in an odd way it made me feel they will they were even more 
permanent part of me, quote, describing the increase in his state of killing in two months prior to his arrest, Jeffrey stated he had been, quote, completely swept along, quote, with his compulsion to kill, adding, quote, it was an instant and never-ending desire to be with someone at whatever it costs. Someone good-looking, really nice-looking, it just filled my thoughts all day long, quote. When asked as to why he had preserved a total of seven schools in the entire skeletons of two victims, Jeffrey stated he had been in the process of constructing a private altar of victims' skulls, which he had intended to display display on the black table located in his living room and upon which he had photographed the bodies of many victims. This display of skulls was to be uh, adorned at each side with the complete skeletons of Ernest Miller and Oliver Lacey. The four severed heads found in his kitchen were to have all flesh removed and used in this altar, as was skull, as was skull of at least one future victim. Incense sticks were to be placed at each end of the block table, above which Jeffrey intended to place a large blue lamp with extending blue globe lights. The entire construction was to be placed before a window covered with a black opaque 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 shower curtain in front of which Jeffrey intended to sit in a black leather chair. When asked in November when asked in November 18, 1981, interview to whom the altar was dedicated, Jeffrey replied, myself, it was a place where I could feel at home. He further described his intended altar as a place for meditation. From where he believed he could draw a sense of power, adding in this, his arrest had happened six months later. That's what they would have found. I'll, uh, I'll get pictures of like the victims, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the picture he made for the altar, and I'll put it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I think that's it for now. But I'll, po I'll post the picture so everyone can see what I'm talking about if you don't know the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. On July 25th, 1991, Jeffrey was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. By August 22nd, 1991, he had been charged with further 11 committed in Wisconsin. On September 14th, 1991, investigators in Ohio, having uncovered hundreds of bone fragments in the woodland behind the address in which Jeffrey had confessed to killing his first victim, formally identified two mo molars and a vertebrae, vertebrae with x-ray records of Stevens. Three days later, Jeffrey was charged by authorities in Ohio with Stevens' murder. Jeffrey was not charged with the attempted murder of Tracy, nor with the murder of Stephen Toomey. Jeffrey was not charged with Stephen Toomey's murder because the Milwaukee County District Attorney only brought charges where murder could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And Jeffrey had no memory of actually committing this particular murder. 
for which no physical evidence of the crime existed. At a scheduled permilarity hearing on January 18, 1992, Jeffrey pleaded guilty but insane for 15 counts of murder. Jeffrey's trial began on January 30, 1992. He was tried in Milwaukee for the 15 counts of first-degree murder before Judge Lawrence Graham, but pleading guilty on January 13, 1992, to the charges brought against him. Jeffrey had waived his right to a trial to establish guilt. As defined in Wisconsin law, attorneys at Jeffrey's trial debated whether he suffered from either a mental or a personality disorder. The prosecution claimed that any disorders did not deprive Jeffrey of the ability to appreciate the criminally of his conduct or to deprive him of the ability to resist his impulses. The defense argued that Jeffrey suffered from a mental disease and was driven by obsession and impulsions he was in, unable to control. Defense argued that Jeffrey was insane due, his, due to his necrophiliac drive, his compulsion to have sexual encounters with corpse. Defense expert Fred Berlin testified that Jeffrey was unable to conform his conduct at the time that he committed the crimes due to his paraphilia or more more specifically necrophilia. Judith Beaker, a professor or psych of psychology and psychologically was the second expert witness for the defense. Beaker diagnosed Jeffrey as a necrophilia, although she added Jeffrey had informed her he preferred comatose sexual witness to deceased ones, quote, 75% quote of the time. The final defense expert to testify, forensic psychiatrist Carl Wallstorm, diagnosed Jeffrey with necrophilia, borderline personality disorder, psycho, psycho, personality disorder, alcohol dependency, and psychotic disorder. On February 8, 1992, Fred Fostel testified on behalf of the prosecution. Fostel testified to his belief that Jeffrey was without medical or sorry, mental disease or defect at the time he committed the murders. He described Jeffrey as a calculating and cunning individual, able to differentiate between right and wrong, with the ability to control his actions and whose lust overpowered his morals. Although Fostal did state final, did, oh, sorry, did state his belief that Jeffrey was a paraphiliac, his conclusion was that Jeffrey was not a sadist. The second and final witness to appear for the prosecution, forensic uh, psychiatric uh, park diets, began his testimony on February 12, 1992. Diets testified that he did not believe that Jeffrey had any form of mental disease or defect at the time that he committed the crime. State that, quote, Jeffrey went to great lengths to be 
along with his victims and to have no witnesses, quote. He explained that there was ample evidence that Jeffrey prepared in advance for each murder. Therefore, his crimes were not impulsive, although Diets did concede any accusation of the paraphilia was not, not a matter of personal choice. He stated his belief that Jeffrey's habit of becoming intoxicated prior to committing each of the murders was significant, quote, if he had an impulse to kill or a compulsion to kill, quote. <clears throat> Diets testified, quote, he wouldn't have to drink alcohol to overcome it. He, has, he only has to drink alcohol to overcome it because he is inhibited, I can't talk. Uh, inhibited against killing. Quote. Uh, Diets noted that Jeffrey strongly identified with the villains of the Exorcist Three in Return of the Jedi, particularly the level of power he held by these characters. Expounding on the significance of these movies on Jeffrey's psyche and many of the murders committed at the Oxford apartments. Diets explained that Jeffrey, that Jeffrey occasionally viewed scenes from these films before searching for a victim. Diets diagnosed Jeffrey with substance use disorder, paraphilia, and psychopole personality disorder. Two court-appointed court mental health professionals testified, testifying independently of either prosecution or defense were forensic psychiatrist George Palermo and clinical psychologist Samuel Friedman. Palermino stated that the murders were the result of a, quote, pent-up aggression within himself, Dahmer. He killed those men because he wanted to kill the source of his homosexual attraction to them. And killing them, he killed what he hated in himself, quote. Paramo Paralermo concluded that Jeffrey had a severe mixed personality disorder with antisocial, obsessive, compulsive, sadist, fetishist for companionship that caught oh, a borderline and necrophiliac features, but otherwise legally sane. Feederman testified testified that it was a longing for companionship that caused Jeffrey to kill and testified that Jeffrey was not psychotic. He described Jeffrey as, quote, amiable, pleasant to be with, cur uh, courteous, with a sense of humor, conventionally handsome and charming in a matter. He was and still is a bright young man, quote. He, he diagnosed Jeffrey with a personality disorder, not otherwise specified featuring borderline obsessive compulsive and sadist traits. The trial lasted two weeks. On February 14, 1992, both, both attorneys delivered their closing arguments to the jury. Each attorney was allowed to speak for two hours. Defense attorney Jill, uh, 
Gerard, Gerard Boyd argued first, repeatedly referring to the testimony of the mental health professionals. Almost all of the argue, almost all of the whom who had agreed Jeffrey was afflicted with a mental disease. Boyle argued that Jeffrey's compulsive killings had been a result of, quote, a sickness he discovered, not chose, quote. Boyle portrayed Jeffrey as a desperately lonely and profoundly sick individual, quote, so out of control he could not conform his conduct anymore, quote. Following the, following the, the defense, counsel's 75-minute closing argument, Michael McCann delivered his closing argument for the prosecution, describing Jeffrey as a sane man in full control of his actions who simply strove to avoid detection. McCann described Jeffrey as a calculating individual who killed to control his victims and retain their bodies. Quote, nearly to afford, quote, himself a prolonged period of sexual pleasure. McCann argued that he pleaded that by pleading guilty but insane to the charges. Jeffrey was seeking to escape responsibility for his crimes. On February 15, 1992, the court re recovered to hear the verdict. Jeffrey was ruled sane and not suffering from a mental disorder at the time of each of the 15 murders of which he was tried. Although in each count, two of the 12 jurors signified their dissent, formal sentencing was postponed until February 17, 1992. On this date, Jeffrey's attorney announced his client wished to address the court. Jeffrey then approached a lectern and read from a statement prepared by himself and the defense as he faced the judge. In this statement, Jeffrey emphasized that he had never desired freedom following his arrest and that he, quote, frankly, quote, wished his own death. He further stressed that none of his murders had been motivated by hatred, that he understood that nothing he either said or did, quote, undo the terrible harm, quote, he had caused to the families of the victims and, and the city of Milwaukee, and that he and his doctors believed his criminal behavior had been motivated by mental health disorders. Jeffrey added that this medical knowledge had been given to him, quote, some peace, quote, and that although he understood that society would never forgive him, he hoped God would. Jeffrey closed his statement with, quote, I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Thank you, Your Honor, and I'm prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no considerations, quote. He then returned to his seat to await formal sentencing. Jeffrey was then sentenced to life imprisonment plus 10 years upon the first two counts. The remaining 13 counts carried a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment plus 70 years. The death penalty was not an option for Judge Graham to consider at the 
penalty phase, as Wisconsin abolished capital punishment in 1853. Upon hearing Jeffrey's sentencing, his, finer, his father Lionel and stepmother Sherry requested to be allowed a 10-minute private meeting with their son before he was transferred to the Columbia Corrections Institute in Portage to begin his sentence. This request was granted and the trio exchanged hugs and well wishes before Jeffrey was escorted away. While he was in trial for these, the families of the victims did say stuff to Jeffrey. Smith's sister Carolyn became a prominent figure in the trial and his brother J.W. Smith read out statements in court from their family. As Jeffrey's trial Ernest's uncle Stanley Miller spoke about how there is no space for a person like Jeffrey in the world. He said, quote, there is no place in a civilized society for anyone who shows no regard for life. I'm not for the death penalty, but you are the perfect candidate, quote. Uh, Flowers testified against Jeffrey in court and explained that if it hadn't been for uh, Jeffrey's grandmother, he believes he would have been murdered. Sadly, Tracy Flowers had a second life at chance, uh, second chance at life and did not do well. Jeffrey really did a number on him and he got PTSD. Later in life, he became homeless and pushed a homeless guy off a bridge. He was sentenced to prison and got out, but no one knows where he is today. Three months after the convention, uh, Convention, Milwaukee, Jeffrey was extradited to Ohio to be tried for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks, in a court hearing lasting 45 minutes. Jeffrey again pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment on May 1st, 1992. Upon sentencing Jeffrey, upon sentencing, Jeffrey was transferred to the Columbia Correctional Institution. For the first year of his incarceration, Jeffrey was placed in solitary confinement due to the concerns for his physical safety should he come into contact with fellow inmates. He received ample correspondence from, uh, from individuals across the world with several individuals donating money which he spent on items such as cassette recordings, stationery, cigarettes, and magazines. Upon Jeffrey's request, after one year in solitary confinement, he was transferred to a less secure unit, where he was assigned two hours daily work detail cleaning toilet block. Though this work detail later ex expanded to including cleaning the prison gym gymnasium. Shortly after his lengthy confessions in 1991, Jeffrey had request, requested to Detective Murphy that he had been, that he be given a copy of the Bible. This request was granted, and Jeffrey gradually devoted himself to Christianity and became a born-again Christian. On his father's urging, he also read creationist books from the Institute for creation research. In May of 1994, Jeffrey was baptized by Roy Ratcliffe 
a minister in the Church of Christ and a graduate of Oklahoma Oklahoma Christianity University, whom he had met on April 20th. The service was conducted in the prison whirlpool. Following Jeffrey's baptism, Ratcliffe visited on a weekly basis. The two regularly discussed the prospect of death, and Ratcliffe later devolved that in the months prior to his murder, Jeffrey had questioned whether he was sinning against God by continuing to live. Referring to his crimes in a 1994 interview with Stone Phillips on Dateline NBC, Jeffrey had st stated, quote, If a person doesn't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway, quote. On July 3rd, 1994, a fellow inmate, Alsalvado Dur Durthy, attempted to slash Jeffrey's throat with a razor embedded in a toothbrush as Jeffrey sat in the prison chapel after the weekly church service was conducted. Jeffrey received superficial wounds and was not seriously hurt in this incident. According to Jeffrey's family, he had long been ready to die and accepted the punishment which he might endure in prison. In addition to this, in addition to his father and stepmother maintaining regular contact, Jeffrey's mother Joyce also maintained regular contact with her son prior to his arrest and had and the two had not seen each other since Christmas of 1983. Joyce related that in her weekly phone calls, whenever she expressed concerns for her son's physical well-being, Jeffrey responded with, Comments to the effect of, quote, it doesn't matter, Mom, I don't care if something happens to me, quote. The death of Jeffrey Dahmer on the morning of November 28, 1994, Jeffrey left his cell to conduct his assigned work detail. Accompanying him were two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. The trio were left unsupervised in the showers of the prison gym for approximately 20 minutes. At approximately 8.10 a.m., Jeffrey was discovered on the floor of the bathrooms of the gymnasium suffering from extreme head wounds. He had been severely bludgeoned about the head and face with a 20-inch to 51-centimeter metal bar. His head had also been repeatedly struck against the wall in the assault. Although Jeffrey was still alive and was rushed to a nearby hospital, he was pronounced dead one hour later. Anderson had been beaten with the same instrument. He died from his wounds two days later. And it's kind of funny because Jeffrey died the same way that he killed his first victim, Stephen Hicks. Karma's a bitch. And the reason why Christopher Scarver killed them was because, quote, God told me to do it. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead, quote. He also said Jeffrey was first and he did not fight back or make a sound when he was beating him. They think Christopher is schizophrenic. Well, that's the story of Jeffrey Dahmer and sorry it was so long and thank you for listening. 
If you like to get in contact with us or give us a request, please email us at true period crime period bitcs at gmail.com. We are on Facebook. You can find us at Jessica Rocky. I did make a group. Their group is True Crime Bitches. You can find us however you find us on Facebook in the groups. We are on Twitter, which is true underscore crime underscore B-I-T-C-S. We are on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash truecrimebitches835. We are on TikTok at true underscore, uh, underscore crime underscore bitches. We are on Amazon Music, True Crime Bitches. We are on Spotify as well as, uh, as True Crime Bitches. We are on Instagram at true underscore crime underscore B-I-T-C. I will be posting pictures on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have someone you know that has been sexually assaulted, please call. 1-800-656-4673. If you or someone you know is feeling suicidal, please call 988. And then for our next podcast, it's going to be the Toy Box Killer. That's going to be way worse to me than Jeffrey Dahmer. I try to get into as much detail as I can find and do as much research. That one is only a one part, so you don't have to wait, you know, another week for another episode. Thank you for listening. You guys have a great day, and stay safe.